Hello and welcome to the commentary track for Tombs of the Blind Dead. My name is Rod Barnett. I am Troy Gwynn. And we are from the podcast Cast. For the last 10 years, we've examined the films of Paul Nashi and also numerous other films from the golden age of Spanish horror. Before we discuss the golden age of Spanish horror, let's discuss the amazing locations that we're being oh, introduced yes. to under the credits of the opening few minutes of Tombs of the Blind Dead. Once we're into the body of the film, this location is blended beautifully by editing so that it all seems to be in one place, the mm -hmm. lost, deserted city of Berzano. But it's actually two different locations that are being skillfully edited together to give you this large, creepy place. Mm -hmm. Most of the shots that you see in the movie were made at the Monasterio del Cerón. It's just outside Madrid, Spain, and it's uh, a little bit of a, a tourist attraction for those who are interested in old, old ruins. But although the credits of the movie only mention that location, the monastery in that place, the sinister ruins of the Templar Cemetery are hidden in the Monastery of Santa Maria la Real Valle de Iglesias. That's where we see the undead Templar Knights rising from their tombs. And I believe it's the oldest monastery in Spain. Well, as always, the ace in the hole for these type films is location, location, location. I mean, they, they make so much mileage out of their ancient history and the, and the things they still have standing. And it's just, it's instant atmosphere, we said before. Instant atmosphere on a budget. It's something the Europeans will always have over those of us here in the States. <laughs> we don't have those locations, and they can just drive out to them. Yeah. <laughs> of course... Tombs of the Blind Dead and its immediate sequel are not the only movies to be shot at these famous locations. Two that come to mind are, uh, immediately are, are two Paul Nashi iconic films. Uh, one, The Traveler, also known as El Caminante, and then Werewolf Shadow, you, in which you will see slow-motion vampires running through these ruins <laughs> as, oppo as opposed to slow-motion blind dead horsemen. Ruins of this type, for some reason, just seem to attract undead creatures and monsters from beyond the grave. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet people still go there to camp out and just, just make all kinds of bad decisions. By showing you the location that eventually will birth the horror that gives this film its name, the credit sequence ends with a jolting shock cut of a scream and a woman's face with, with a shock of white hair, jolting you out of any mood that the credit sequence may have engendered within you, and then, boom, suddenly we're at this beautiful resort by the beach at a pool where there are lots of beautiful people. Mm -hmm. Clearly, the movie is setting up one of my favorite things in these, in these horror movies from this time period, which is the dichotomy, the split between the old traditional ways of things and the new modern way of, well, 1970 or 1971. I do think that the director, Armando D'Osorio, does use the zoom lens a bit more effectively and, let's say, a bit more judiciously than Jess Franco. Uh, yes, I think most people do. But then again, <laughs> <Well>, true. <laughs> Armando D'Osorio, at least for a portion of his career, had more of a budget than true. Jess Franco generally did when he was making those super special small budget projects <laughs> that he was fitting in between the larger, yeah. you know, micro-budget things that he was making in this period. D'Osario's filmography is, uh, we could definitely say, it, not as extensive as Franco's. <laughs> Honestly, a handful of films only made by D'Osario starting in the 60s, that if mm. you ignore his short films in, in, in the 50s, mm. starting in the 60s with a couple of proto-spaghetti westerns, mm -hmm. uh, Rebels in Canada and things like that, 
uh, one horror film before he made this one, The Fangs of the Living Dead, or Malinka, mm-hmm. and then straight into this one. Until you're aware of the age of Amando de Osorio when he wrote and directed Tombs of the Blind Dead, you might be surprised at how accomplished and smoothly made this picture is. But he was older than you would think for a man who had only made a handful of films up to this point. The skill level he attained over time shows very clearly here, and I will uh, point out along the way a few bright spots where you can see the filmmaking skills that are just small but very telling in how to smoothly paper over at times some deficiencies that the film might otherwise have. Well, even the very first films he made were among the very first cinemascope films made in, in Spain, which were his travelogues he made. So so even from the first, he was already kind of mastering the, the most advanced filming technology. So he was very technically very, very talented, very accomplished, as you said, even by the, by the time he got to making these films. Now, as the film is introducing our three main characters here, We'd like to point out that if you're interested in finding out more about uh, the cast and crew and their backgrounds and the careers that they had in Spanish cinema, we'll refer you to the other commentary track on this Blu-ray by Troy Howarth, where he will delve deeply into the information about each one of the actors on screen. We're going to be covering different topics, and we're trying to make sure that you can listen to both of these tracks without getting the same information with just different voices. So, If you do the same information, we thought of it first. (laughs) Don't tell Troy that. (laughs) Well, to me, Tombs of the Blind Dead is easily one of the best Spanish horror films of the 1970s. As much as I love Paul Nashi films, Tombs of the Blind Dead, even better than the things that Paul Nashi was turning out in the early 70s. Yeah, it absolutely makes that essential list. I mean, that essential list of if you're going to get into Spanish horror, this is, or European horror in general, this is one of the ones you got to see. True, true. Tombs of the Blind Dead is a symphony of near-perfect horror, I feel. It plays out like a slowly growing, ever more frightening nightmare with punctuating arpeggios placed in various spots to keep you off balance. The symphony that is Tombs of the Blind Dead is one of increasing dread in which the worst of intentions have the same awful outcomes as the most altruistic ones. It smoothly and creepily glides toward a bloody, violent crescendo in its final seconds that points toward the possibility of an apocalyptic level of danger and death. There are a few discordant notes along the, along the way, <laughs> as there can be discordant notes in a piece of music, and because there are so few, they do stand out. Of course, we'll talk about those elements when we get to them in the movie, but since we're talking about the music of this film's construction, let's talk specifically for a moment about the score and the man who wrote and produced it. Anton Garcia Abril was a man who composed music for hundreds of films, even though, in a lot of cases, his music was being used by filmmakers well after he composed it for some other purpose. Right. Now, he did compose the score for this film, but the funny thing is, the score he wrote for Tombs of the Blind Dead got used for all three of the subsequent sequels mm-hmm. to this movie as well. Yeah. So, he has four credits for the same soundtrack <laughs> that, he's, that he wrote for this particular movie, which, of course, you know, I guess you could call that resume inflation. I don't know. But he also wrote wonderful scores for tons of other films. And, of course, in the Spanish horror genre, what you end up with is work for a number of Spanish horror classics, like 
Dr. Jekyll versus the Wolfman, the aforementioned Werewolf Shadow, also known as the Werewolf versus the Vampire Women. Right. Later on, for Osorio, he wrote a new score for The Lorelei's Grasp, and his career continued for decades after that, writing for both screen and television mm-hmm. in Spain. This score is one of the most unique you'll find in cinema history. Yeah. Not the cocktail music that plays underneath the <laughs> opening scene at poolside, of course. That's a different matter entirely. Right, well. What I'm talking about is, of course, the iconic music that builds dread and brings on the feeling of impending doom as the blind dead stalk their prey. It's one of the standout horror themes ever, I think, and, and it, very, very appropriate. It fits so well, and I'm, I've said before that, to me, it sounds like monks chanting while undergoing some hideous transformation. <laughs> it's truly what it conveys. Uh, no wonder they just use it again and again, because how are you going to top that? But what's interesting is that it, it makes the blind dead one of the earliest creatures in films to really have their distinctive theme, because there was great music through all the Universal films and the Hammer films and the classic horror movies, great music, but really I can only think of the creature from the Black Lagoon as being a monster that had an ongoing theme that would appear in each of its films. It had that great three-note yeah. theme for the creature, and then of course a lot of the Japanese kaiju Godzilla you know, had, had his recurring themes, but most of your monsters at that point didn't have that ongoing theme that you could always count on coming on like the James Bond theme or something in that. That's true. I think the closest mm. that you get otherwise is that distinctive Bernard Herrmann mm. dun-dun-dun right. for the horror of Dracula or Dracula. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's really as close as Hammer ever came to trying to assign a piece of music yeah. to one of its iconic creatures right. or monsters. So here the Blind Dead are kind of the predecessors to what like came later with Michael Myers and, and Jason Voorhees, you know, that, uh, these monsters that had their own kind of distinctive theme that they became associated with. To that point, there's a great quote from Amando D'Asorio talking about that very thing specifically. At times, the score for the Blind Dead movies has been remarked upon as Morricone style, in a way, mm-hmm. hearkening back to the spaghetti western scores that Morricone became famous for mm-hmm. when he was uh, writing those incredible pieces of music for Sergio Leone's uh, Dollars Trilogy, most especially. What Abril put together is not just music. I mean, there are moans, there are monk chants, perhaps mm-hmm. Gregorian chants. Mm-hmm. Screams, creaking boards, sounds like chains clanking at times. And Osorio admitted that the musical score helped make his films, saying the same had worked for Leone and for Hitchcock, so he was simply duplicating the concept. Uh, He says, I used a man from down in Seville. Abril was his name. (laughs) (laughs) What I wanted was to do like Leone and Morricone, where the music became an important central part of the film. In Leone's Westerns, each character has a central theme where you hear it and know it is Lee Van Cleef or Clint Eastwood or Charles Bronson coming. I wanted to hear a composition which immediately let the viewer know that the Templars were coming. What came about was a slow, satanic-sounding funeral march. We used it in all the Templar films. It became their central theme, and the idea worked. The film score also added much to the film. It was like Halloween many years later. What would Halloween have been like without the score it had? It would have just been another horror film. And I think he's right. Could say the same about Jaws, too. That's another example. That's another fantastic example where the perfect melding of score and story and image, especially image, as we will talk about in this film, create something that would never have been as impressive without that combination. 
it harkens back to an idea that I think that film is one of the best examples of within the artistic world. The idea of emergent properties. Two separate elements coming together to create something different and new. And in relation to the creation of Spanish horror in the Golden Age, it's amazing to think about how odd elements came together. Creative people who, just a few years earlier, in Osorio's case, had disdained the idea of making a horror film when approached by someone like Paul Nashi, who turned himself into one of the best purveyors of the genre by merging his ideas and his obsessions with someone like Abril and all of the fantastic technicians that he employed to create this first classic Blind Dead film. To give you a little background on writer-director Amando Diasorio, he was born Amando Diasorio Rodriguez to a middle-class family in 1918 in Galicia, Spain. As a child, his life was marked by having a cinema right in front of his home. The place was run by a fellow who resisted the introduction of talkies and stocked his theater with silent classics well into the 1930s. Therefore, little Amando could see well into his teenage years films like Rudolph Valentino's adventure romances or Greta Garbo movies. Once he saw his first sound films and musicals from MGM, the comedies of Ernest Lubitsch, he was a true film fanatic. But it was the classic universal horror movies such as Dracula and Frankenstein that left a deep impression on the young man. By his late teens and early 20s, he's working as a writer adapting works of literature for Spanish national radio, and in 1942, he goes to Madrid to study journalism. There, his love of cinema flowers, and he makes two short films. But Osorio's adventure in the capital city ends when he's forced to take a Spanish credit bank job in his hometown at the insistence of his father. He despises his work and spends all of his off time at a local photography studio where he organizes gatherings of painters, musicians, writers, architects, and others important in the cultural life of the city. At the same time, he's producing a show for Spanish national radio to further the discussions that are being had in these gatherings and to open them up to a wider audience. Osorio had artistic aspirations that were not being fulfilled, so he quit his job and went back to Madrid in 1949, this time for good. Once he was there, he used every idea he could think of to try to make his name known in the artistic world. He was also working in advertising from about 1956 to 1960, where he was instrumental in creating ads and trailers for the theatrical releases of Spanish and foreign films. In 1956, Osorio produced his first feature film, Black Flag. It's a very political film and something that spoke directly to Spanish culture and the political situation at the time in his home country. The censorship of the time prevented the premiere of the film and kept it from being seen by more than a handful of people. This failure and this clash with the censor board of Spain plunged Osorio into years of ostracism in the film industry. He stayed in touch with the artistic side of life in Madrid throughout the 50s, and he continued to be involved in, in various social gatherings, but he was not able to get back behind a camera and make a film until the 1960s. By the time Osorio again tried his luck in the world of cinema, he made two lesser-known and definitely lesser-seen spaghetti western-style movies, Grave of the Gunfighter in 1964 and Rebels in Canada in 1966. He also made a children's drama and a comedy in 1967, and none of these really were exactly what he wanted to do, but they did show, if you can drag down copies of them, mm -hmm an amount of talent and a certain growth from film to film 
of style and technique. I personally enjoy Rebels in Canada because I'm a fanatic about uh, yeah. Canadian mounted. <laughs> I know you are Canadian yeah. mounted police stories, and uh, that's just that's just strange to me. So, as I understand it, they're kind of the villains in that that film, though, aren't they? The... Kind of. It's a little more complicated than that, which is what kind of makes it more interesting. Sure. Film. It's it's yeah. a pretty good little movie. Mm-hmm. He was finally able to leverage his success with those movies and his newly earned reputation as a trustworthy director by getting these particular movies made to get his own script produced at that point. It's a film he'd had gathering dust in a drawer for years called Malinka, and it came out in 1968, also known as Fangs of the Living Dead. By the early 70s, his job description shifted at the National Radio of Spain in such a way that it allowed for him to have much more free time to do different things outside of his job. And that is when his film career really kicked into gear, starting with Tombs of the Blind Dead. Right, so a couple of thoughts on those early films. I love the fact that he got immediately got into trouble with his <laughs> with his first one. <laughs> I think uh, Black Flag was a critical specifically of the death penalty, I think. Yes. And uh, which just shows kind of his humanist leanings, which some people might not gather he had after viewing such grisly and downbeat fare as uh, the film we're covering here. True. Uh, but so, yeah, he, he right off the bat got in trouble. And then also with Malenka, a.k.a. Fangs of Living, Living Dead, um, that film was one that he intended to be much more psychological than it turned out to be once it went under the machinations of the producers who kind of beefed up the supernatural aspect of the story. And so when he was kind of getting right then a a welcome to the world of horror, being a horror film director. I'm sure the spirits of many other horror film directors could, could say, yep, join the club, buddy. That's what it's, that's what it's like. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can try to be intellectual all yeah, you want, yeah. <laughs> but if you're not throwing paint on the wall, <laughs> yeah. nobody's buying your bloody movie. That's right. Now, luckily, what we're watching is the longest, most uncut version of the film. The 97-minute version of this film is the longest available version of the film, which is a blessing to be able to see. Absolutely. Most audiences saw much shorter versions of this. The trims in various countries are legendary. And the shorter version that American audiences saw is not exactly what I would have thought it would be, considering that, to my mind, what was almost always being cut out of these movies no matter what the source might have been, whether it came from Spain or anywhere in Europe or Japan or anywhere else, are going to be the elements that might get them into trouble. Before it goes up onto a drive-in screen here in the States in the 70s, they're going to trim out some of the nudity and probably going to leave in the violence because the violence they can get away with because it's America, after all. But one of the most striking things is immediately evident because the sequence that we see in the full-length cut of the film much later in the movie that introduces the background, the horrors inflicted ritualistically on women victims by the Templar Knights that eventually become the Blind Dead, in the American cut, or the shorter cut of the film, is shoved right to the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. Whether that's a good or bad decision will depend on what you think about the slow build of tension and the drawing in of an audience rather than (laughs) presenting the most outrageous scene of a movie up front. Well, I will tell you that I think it was a good decision from their point of view, I mean, from the there being the distributors, the people, I think it was actually a good idea to do that. Uh, I can see why they did it. I don't think it detracts from the film. We're used to, we being avid fans, we're going to sit down and we're going to let these films just take us where they want to go, you know. So we're going sure. to have that kind of patience 
that perhaps an American drive-in audience might not have. I mean, I just think on, from a distributor's point of view, it was a great idea to immediately give them something they can sink their teeth into in the first segment that doesn't mess up the story later on. That doesn't, that as it goes, that's just my opinion. You might not agree, but I just think that from their point of view, I think that it was probably a wise move. It's a, it's a valid point of view, and it, it certainly is consistent with what was being done at the time. Mm-hmm. Remember, you wanted to get these people interested in the movie mm-hmm. enough to pay the ticket and then mm-hmm. interested enough to stay through the whole mm-hmm. thing. Or at least keep them from making out for the least five or ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> if humanly if possible. You, if possible. Now, one of the elements that I would have assumed would get trimmed out of the shorter version of the movie as it was shown in the United States was probably some of the overt sexuality. Mm -hmm. That was almost always a no-go zone. You could get away with a certain amount of stuff and certainly some nudity, but there were some areas where you didn't want to tread. But what is left in in that shorter Mm -hmm. cut are things that I would not have expected. Mm -hmm. For instance, in the movie when we have this wonderful, beautiful, artful shot of Virginia changing out of her clothes into something to sleep in, we see her nude through the flickering flames of a fire that she's built. This scene, although showing just a little bit of backside nudity, is trimmed out of the shortcut, which is something that I would have expected them to actually retain. Mm -hmm. After all, a female backside was something that you could get away with fairly easily And it certainly wasn't verboten, like, say, full frontal nudity from the waist down, which you could see was always avoided in exploitation films of the time, which is why you would get these really weird zoom-ins to a naked woman's breast and then back out as she turned her backside toward the camera so that you never saw the offending pubic area. Mm-hmm. Well, and cutting that scene out is really does a disservice to the director, Osorio, because not only is the scene artistic, as you said, but it also directly foreshadows something that happens later in the film. Yes, yes, indeed. Meaning... Virginia's demise, once she's become later a zombie, actually dies in flames. And so we're getting a visual foreshadowing of that. And, and But you cut that scene out, and okay, bang goes that. <laughs> yeah. Then there's no visual cue from right. one scene to the next right. to give you that impression. Other odd bits and pieces that get trimmed out of the shorter version are really curious. They leave in the lesbian flashback scene, which, having no nudity and only being suggestive, Mm -hmm. sapphic action, of course, is something that I feel that they could probably get away with and not have to worry too much about. It's not an especially explicit scene. No. And even cutting out what they did, you still know, it still makes it obvious what's going on between these two characters. Exactly. It it sets up the sexual tension between the two of them for having had a bisexual background at the very least. I can only think in something in that case, it's probably literally just more just trying to trim sheer seconds out of the film because, you know, you're always thinking double, trip feature, triple feature on the the drive-in circuit. Taking a 97-minute film down as much as you can is probably a lot of what drives that. Some of the things that get trimmed out, I would have expected. Mm-hmm. There are scenes that I would desperately want to keep in the movie because they establish mood and atmosphere. Mm-hmm. They give a purpose to certain other scenes later on by setting up certain locations. But some of that stuff gets trimmed out, and that's exactly the kind of stuff that you would expect to get trimmed out. Yeah. But more violence got cut out of that longer edit to get a shorter version yeah. than I would really have ever expected. Same here, yeah, I agree. So if you get a chance to see the shorter version, I suggest doing it, but you will be a bit surprised at what is retained and what isn't. Some of the more effective and, one might say, disturbing images get trimmed out 
even within the body of more violent things, and I'm thinking specifically of some of the more shocking images of blood splattering onto a child's face in the final sequence. That is a truly effective thing and something that is disturbing, but not something that I would have expected them to trim out. Whereas I did expect them to trim out some of the more violent sword thrusts and cuts and blood flows that do get trimmed down just a little bit here and there. Yeah. You're right. I think the major overriding desire was just to shorten the film down to under 90 minutes mm. as much as possible. Yeah. But you're right. You would think that that would mean more more dialogue, you know, cut dialogue scenes shorter or eliminate them altogether as opposed to the, the, the grisly stuff, you know. Well, some dialogue does get eliminated, yeah, does. but not as much as you might think. Right. Once the blind dead appear in this movie, of course, we have our iconic monsters on screen. The most original, if not the only original monster created during the golden age of Spanish horror. Possibly the only other one I would think of would also be because of Disorio, which would be the Lorelei. Very true. And in both cases, his inspiration is pulled from history and legend Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the deep European past. Mm -hmm. Amazing stuff. In the Lorelei's case, of course, Germanic legends. Right. And in this case, the Knights Templar. Mm -hmm. Now, the look of the blind dead is amazing. Oh, absolutely. Of course, everyone would know that one of the main inspirations for this film's existence and the monsters themselves is George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. But having taken that core idea of undead shambling creatures rising from the grave to attack the living, boy does Osorio put his own very different spin on things. Absolutely. First of all, we get an entire backstory in the context of this film for where the creatures come from, what they are, what drives them, why they're doing what they're doing. Whereas Romero's idea was to only hint at a possible thing within the body of Night of the Living Dead and to leave it much more mysterious and therefore, to his mind, more interesting. Of course, in this case, the more details we have about the blind dead, the creepier they are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because... Once we get to the flashback about how they came about being undead, it gets even more disturbing. The look of the blind dead is a unique thing. There have been nothing quite like this before. These are not shambling creatures, but they do move slowly, if only because they're usually moving in slow motion. Yes. That is until they're in the same room with you, and suddenly there's a swarm of them around. And much (laughs) like zombies from a a Romero film, they might move slowly, but there's just far too many of them to deal with. That's one of the best things about the attack sequences, the stalking sequences within these deserted ruins with the blind dead, is just as soon as you might think, yeah, yeah, get out of there, get out of that area, get out of there... Try not to make they try not to make any sound. You've discovered that oh, it doesn't matter because every exit that you attempt mm-hmm. to take, mm-hmm. suddenly there are more of them coming through that portal. Because that is always going to be kind of the problem when dealing with a monster that does move so slowly. Is as a filmmaker, you've got to not put too many instances in there as few as you can, where people are going to roll their eyes and say like, "Oh, come on." You should have been able to get away from that situation, and so it's very clever the way you have to place it to convey that feeling that. 
you understand why these characters can't escape. And it's also wonderful in that at no point do you have a firm grasp on how many of these shambling, right. undead right. creatures there are. Mm-hmm. That means that there's almost always one mm-hmm. lurking around the corner. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of any other, right off of any other uh, creature that was portrayed usually by a human in makeup or costume that also half the time is portrayed literally by a skeleton and the way that they and the way that they blend that's very very seamless oh it's it's wonderful first we have stuntmen Mm -hmm. made up in these elaborate costumes Mm -hmm. with the wonderful cloak giving them the ability to hide their own arms and therefore have these skeletal barely covered desiccated flesh arms and fingers reaching out for people obviously operated by those hidden human hands and arms underneath those cloaks and these elaborate wonderfully creepy masks that hide the face entirely and through skillful editing even these wonderful more articulate hands that can reach through windows and doorways and grasp things and move them can be blended perfectly with the stuntmen in those wonderful dried up old canvas things oh that they're gosh. wearing. I mean, I don't know what they did to <laughs> just this the look of just the cloaks they're wearing. Whatever they did to make these things truly look like they're centuries old. It's wonderful. The, yeah. the, I, I love the amount of dust that it will yeah. occasionally just mm. get brushed <laughs> off of them, and there's like this little, mm. these little flakes of mm. what look to be just dried earth that sometimes comes off as they move. Mm. It's wonderful, and it's an amazing effect. And once again, an amazing attention to detail. We should point out that it was Amando Diasorio himself who designed yeah. the look He's and the in, costumes yeah. for these creatures. These are his original creations. Mm-hmm. All credit to him. One of the most amazing things about this is something that is not something you'd ever see in another kind of zombie film, although a variation on this does kind of crop up in a very late George Romero zombie film. Spectral horses. Yeah. Zombie horses. Ghost horses. Mm -hmm. Now, luckily, these horses seem to have their eyes. (laughs) Yeah. So once the uh, undead Knights Templar are on horseback, at least... Could get a little ugly if the horses are blind, too. (laughs) But once again, these horses are another wonderful effect, adding incredibly to the spookiness, to the atmosphere, to that sense of dread, because even if you can get away from them right now, they'll get on these horses and still track you down, which is, of course, what happens to our poor Virginia in the opening attack sequence at Berzano. Now, once they find Virginia's body after she's killed, there are all those bite marks on her body. And in other of the Blind Dead movies, you and I have talked about how there comes a question at times as to whether or not these creatures are drinking the blood, which seems to be the intent. In other words, a sort of vampiric effect. Drinking this blood allows them to retain this bizarre, undead, eternal life that they strove to get their hands on. But there comes a question at times where there seem to be pieces of flesh missing. So are they also involved in a form of cannibalism? Right. Now, the movies never answer that question. Right. There are sometimes chunks taken out of the bodies that they attack and kill, and Mm -hmm. other times not. But it does seem to be a kind of the blood is the life kind Mm -hmm. of situation. Where once again, as in so many undead legends, it is the draining of the vitality, the blood, Mm -hmm. that allows these creatures Mm -hmm. to retain the form of life that they have bargained so heavily for. 
one of the fascinating things about watching the four Blind Dead films is the way that the mythos of the creatures, their their abilities, their reasons for being can morph a little bit sometimes, you know, just slightly change without ever really losing that basic effectiveness of what they are. So, like you said, things like them drinking blood, you know, isn't necessarily a part of, of every film. You know, I think it's very important to this film and kind of what they represent in this film. But the, the way that they change like that, um, one, one of the things that I like about the presentation of the dead, it never really states this never overtly, but there's always a suggestion that they sort of may exist almost in their own realm. And one of the ways it really displays that here in this first film is when Virginia gets on one of their horses. She actually escapes and, from them. Yeah, and, and her attempt to get away from them, yes. And then she is then in slow motion through all of those scenes. Yes. You know, and, and again, it's that kind of suggestion that once you are, you know, if you get on one of their horses or you're in their world, you're sort of in their dimension. Uh, one of the later films, Ghost Galleon, they're on a ship that kind of exists outside of reality. And uh, it's, that's a nice little idea that he plays with there without ever actually explicitly dis, you know, explaining it. And by the way, I'd like to single out the actress who plays Virginia, Maria Elena Arpon, mm-hmm. for being the person who is very clearly on horseback in those slow motion sequences and also the person who is being pulled off that horse in slow motion there at the end before she reaches the railroad tracks. That is an actress who really went the extra mile in making this picture. Well, heck, how about before that, earlier than that, she jumps off of the train, and I, I don't really care how slow that train is going, she jumps off that train onto gravel. It makes me hurt just watching <laughs> that scene. I guarantee you, I would hobble, I would be hobbling away if I was filming that. So even that shows that, yeah, that she was a real trooper. Well, that is actually one of the discordant notes that I'd like to bring up about the film. <laughs> oh, the whole jumping off the train thing? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of the problems that I think anybody would have with the film, which is that... Um, Besides it being one of the moments in, in a horror film where a character does something yeah. really stupid yes, to course. make the plot Absolutely. work, yeah. <laughs> it is also very evident that although it is the actress who drops who jumps yeah. off of that train, it's also clear that that train is moving very well, slow. Well, it is very slow. It is good. You're right. And so that is one of the uh, one of the discordant notes, as I mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that I w- mm-hmm. that I'll bring up as we go, which is. Yeah, that train ain't moving real fast. Especially through an area that the engineers are so terrified. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Well, that's just it. I always get the impression that not only should it look like the train is moving faster, there should be a reason given for why they can't go too fast Mm. through this area, Mm. and that's another aspect of things that makes that engineer, that man running the train, Mm. that much more nervous about going through this area because he can't go at a, mm. at the fastest speed for whatever reason, that would be a nice piece to add into the dialogue in one way or another. Yeah, I always see this train as kind of the stand-in for what would have been the coach, you know, in the classic films there, because oh, yes. it's pretty much serving the same thing. No, we're not going to stop in this area. We're not going to get out. <laughs> we're going to keep going. And But it shouldn't move as slow as a coach. You're right. It should <laughs> move a little quicker than that. Amando de Osorio drew from many sources to create his creatures and his stories and um, mythology, European history, and also from literature in particular, one of the most famous Spanish poets and novelists, short story writers, whose name was Gustavo Adolfo Becker. Uh, He did not live very long. He was born in 1836 and died in 1870, but he is revered today by Spaniards, especially Spaniards who love tales of the supernatural or fantastical, because at the time that he wrote, he was pretty much the only Spanish writer who was writing stories of that form and and writing in that form. Most of the other Spanish writers at that time 
wrote things in a very realistic, naturalistic manner, but he actually wrote things that had very much of a fantasy and supernatural tones to them. And he wrote both poetry and stories and novels. And in particular, interest to us is he wrote a short story called La Monte de los Animus, which translates as The Mountain of Souls. And in that story, there is a scene where the protagonist enters into sort of a nightmarish world and in and, and an old Templar fortress and has a vision of an undead Templar corpse coming to life. And so that would seem to be a pretty direct, pretty direct inspiration for Osario to create his Templars. Certainly, it might have very easily have been the seed mm-hmm. for the, uh, the idea that eventually became the blind dead. Mm-hmm. That's true. So I like the way that Osario does incorporate some ideas and tropes from classic horror movies into this story, even as modern as a lot of aspects of it is. Uh, when Elizabeth and Roger meet that same brick wall that protagonists in horror movies of old always have, where the, you have the case where you have the inhabitants who live close to this place that are terrified of it, and literally have just kind of a, a policy of we don't talk about this. Yes, we don't mention the damned place. Yes, and I think it's kind of a, a way of showing, again, the even though these undead creatures are ancient, they, the power they still have over the average people, the average citizens, in the way an oppressive government has that kind of power over the oppressed citizens, in the way that, that we, we can't do, we're helpless, we can't do anything about this, and so we just pretend that it doesn't exist. Well, what's missing from this is, of course, the village mob with pitchforks and torches. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the film is not constructed in a way so that that ever happens. Right. No, it's constructed in a way so that eventually the people with pitchforks and torches mm-hmm. are going to be overrun by the, the blind dead, whether they want to or not. <laughs> right. Well, once again, the film takes us on horseback this time, regular, normal horseback, yes. to our ruins, or at least to one set of the ruins, so that we can take a look at this in the daylight once again. Spanish people thought that the idea of making horror films was kind of silly in their home country because they thought of their country and still do to a large degree think of their country as this very bright, sun-dappled, beautiful place drenched in very unscary imagery. Mm-hmm. Well, very carefully, the very first scene in the movie is a great open swimming pool with lots of beautiful people. Yep. That was intentional. It's like, this is, you know, we have a beautiful country here, so... Well, not only that, the the scenes of walking out to Brazano, mm-hmm. the scenes of walking around the ruins in daylight mm-hmm. when our two erstwhile heroes go in search of the missing Virginia, these are beautiful, bright daylight. This is the imagery that mm-hmm. Spaniards thought of when they thought of their own country. So the idea of these gothic, shadow-encrusted, bat-draped <laughs> things happening in their own country mm-hmm. was kind of silly. And, of course, this was something that was backed up by the idea of not letting anything horrible happen in these movies in Spain. Now, understand that the main reason given by the censors and by Franco, if he were to be asked, I'm sure, was because it will hurt tourism. Mm -hmm. They were very much opening their borders at this point. Yeah. We don't want anything that would make Spain less attractive to foreigners. Being twisted like you and I are, we would much rather run around these woods in the dark. (laughs) But that's just the way we roll. Yeah, just until I turn my ankle. That, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be would be something I'd like to avoid. No hay rastro de Virginia.
Now, one thing I'd like to point out here is just a very small thing. I've talked about these very small touches that Osorio puts throughout his film that are just little pieces of smart filmmaking. One of them is in this scene, and it's, it's the way in which Osorio learned good filmmaking technique to transition from scene to scene. And there is a sequence when Roger and Elizabeth are in these runs, and they move from one area to another. It's after the horses have run off. Roger puts his hand on Elizabeth's arm to guide her, and they move from left to right, and then the next edit, they're moving in the same direction, and his hand is still in the same place holding her arm as they walk into that shot. And it's a transitionary shot from one location to another, and by having the two actors have that same position as they move continuously through the edit, it helps to fool the eye and give you the impression that this is all one place. Mm. It's a very smart technique, and it's one that if you pay attention, uh, it will ruin a lot of movies for you. <laughs> I think we've watched this movie too many times, possibly. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I, have, I have studied the films of Osorio, and I will continue to do so mm. until I die. <laughs> Same here. Of course, it, it's during this early 70s, late 60s, early 70s period, this brief few years of the golden age of Spanish mm. horror, when we get this flowering of fantastic cinema mm-hmm. from Spain. It's during these last years of Franco's dictatorship, which is a very, very fertile period for uh, what we might call low-culture mm. cinema, but I would call the joyous, most wonderful kind of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> but during this, the emergence of an exposure to and the success of the horror film paralleled the, uh, the gradual shift from an authoritarian government to one of ordered liberty and democracy. In other words, in a strange way, it kind of mirrors the way Spain as a country moved forward. And 35 years of political, economic, and industrial discord found an explosion with the death of Franco in 1975 and the subsequent ascendancy of King Juan Carlos and the return of the House of Bourbon to the throne of Spain. Franco's death, however was not a guarantee for instant radical change. There was a period there called the Spanish Transition from about 75 to 82 from an authoritarian Catholic regime to a secular social democracy, and it was slow, deliberate, and quite divided in reaching consensus for Spain's new political direction. Fellow Spanish director Eugenio Martin spoke with writer Nicholas Schlegel several years ago and talked specifically about this idea and what it was like to live under this kind of transition Martin said, while you're living under a dictatorship, you are the first one to censor yourself because you you say, no, I cannot do this. I cannot write this because they, the censors, are going to say no, no, no. So everything was limited. You did so many horror films because these films were not prohibited at this time. Violence was not considered something immoral. So if you make a comedy or a sort of psychological comedy where you are studying people around you, that was dangerous because maybe the censorship would say no, no, no. It happened to me. It happened to many directors at the time. So horror films were a safe way to make commentary about the world around them and specifically their own country and culture. Because if you put something in the context that it's unreal to begin with, then you can slip those kind of messages or those sort of metaphors in because the censors, I guess, feel the audience is already in the frame of mind as this is all make-believe to begin with. And it's also... We're not really oppressed. (laughs) Uh, Of course not. We're not really (laughs) oppressed. And of course, at this point, we should mention something that I think we've neglected to mention, which is Spain was perfectly happy with you making horror Mm. films, but they would not allow you to have a horrific thing. These horror stories take place within Spain itself. This movie primarily takes place in Portugal. Mm -hmm. 
But it did a, a neat little trick in that there's a small section of the film that does take place in Madrid. Yeah. He slipped it through. There's a scary scene that takes place in Spain. And I wonder how he got away with it, how he even thought he was going to get away with it. How did the censors allow this to happen? Because remember, Elizabeth's, or Bet's, depending on which dub you're listening to, her mannequin factory is in Madrid. Mm -hmm. So the sequences that take place there are on Spanish soil. (laughs) So Brazano and the Tombs of the Blind Dead are safely away across the border in Portugal, <laughs> but not everything is so clear-cut. Not only is it a scary mannequin factory, but they even state that it's very close to the morgue, so it makes it, we, even have, we have morgues in Spain? Are you kidding? This can't be true. <laughs> cannot be true. How did you get out here? We rented a couple of horses from our hotel. They both ran away. Then you must be Elizabeth Turner and Roger Whalen. Yeah, that's correct. And you spent the night at the Hotel Flores and left this morning at 11. What's that to do with our friend? Our police station is not what you'd call very modern, but you see, we do have a telephone. Please tell us what happened to Virginia. Your friend has been murdered. (gasps) No! It's my fault! Betty, it's not your fault. Nobody could foresee what happened. We'll need you for the identification. I have no idea what younger viewers of this film for the first time will think of the morgue attendant (laughs) character. The bizarre Mm. morgue attendant character in this film is a standout because once Mm. seen, never forgotten. Whether he's taking glee in showing the wrong body to people who are there to identify a friend's corpse, or he's... Torturing a frog? What is he doing? I have no idea what he's doing there. I think of his performance as like a physical version of, of a non sequitur. It's like his, his reactions, the way he interacts with it is just like he's constantly on a different track with everybody else. <laughs> well, we, we should point out that if you're unaware of this and if you're younger than mm-hmm. Troy and myself, perhaps we should inform you that the comedic morgue attendant was for some reason, especially in the 1970s, mm-hmm. in American television... A trope that reoccurred again and again. And mm. I first came across it in uh, a television program called Kolshak the Night oh, Stalker, yeah. where Gordy, there was a re- the ghoul. <laughs> yeah, there was a reoccurring humorous morgue attendant character. Mm. But that is far from the only time you will see them. They crop up this character type again and again mm. and again, all the way through current day. Uh, I, there was a movie that was made just a few years ago where we have a, a morgue attendant who is, of course, eating a sandwich the entire time he's discussing, dismembering, mm-hmm. and doing an autopsy on a dead body. Mm-hmm. This is a reoccurring thing, and it's very strange. I have no idea where it comes from. I have no idea why this occurred. I, 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 I'm assuming that it came out of the need to have a lot of information dropped on the viewer that only the person doing an autopsy could do or in certain cases would have access to the information that the doctor wasn't willing to give to, say, a nosy reporter or an investigator who's outside the realm of the police. But i got to (laughs) say, Osorio's use of this particular bizarre character is uh, a real joy. And uh, uh, while it is non sequitur, Mm -hmm. a major non sequitur, it is, uh, it's one of my favorite little things mm. to, to get a chuckle. I think, in a way, 
it's almost like a palate cleanser. Oh, yeah, and I think that that's why he's using it for here, because this story is so grim. I think that this is another one's instances of intentional humor where he's like, here's a chance to kind of lighten the mood a little bit slightly, you know. And and the assumption is, I think, that anyone who works in a morgue is either, you know, no 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 normal person can work as a morgue attendant. <laughs> and so they're always either creepy and, and scary or they're uh, mentally damaged in some way or they're just completely irreverent to the situation and disrespectful of the corpses they're standing over by, as you mentioned, possibly just eating a big sandwich. <laughs> yes. I mean, it carries through, like I say, all the way to modern day. It's bizarre. I don't understand it, but I'm glad it's there. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, dreaded Templar Knights, who were the basis for Osorio's Blind Dead films, really existed, of course. Mm-hmm. They're the Knights Templar, or if you were to use the full actual name of the order, it was the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon. Mm-hmm. They were formed in the early 1100s, and by 1128, at the Council of Troyes, the Templars were officially recognized by the Pope which granted them the freedom from allegiance to anyone other than the Pope himself. In effect, this rendered the Templar Knights totally independent from all kings and princes and immune from interference from both religious and political authorities. In other words, the Templar Knights at that point were a power unto themselves. Are you starting to spot the problem here? <laughs> Precisely. Now, their power and influence grew rapidly and to an extraordinary degree. People from all walks of life flocked to enter the ranks of the Templar Knights, and their coffers were soon swollen by the donations of money from every quarter of Christendom. Even though, officially, all members of the order had taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But really, it's only obedience that they ever got around to. Because even though, individually, they could not gather wealth to themselves... As a group, they certainly could, and boy, did they. By the time of the Second Crusade, they were the greatest fighting force in Europe mm-hmm. and acknowledged as such by everyone on the continent. Well, because they had so many locations in so many different countries and they had such a large economic infrastructure, they've been likened before to being the world's first multinational corporation. They've actually been called that before. <laughs> well, yeah, it's... Uh, Besides their political interests, the Templars were active in a lot of areas, including the fact that our modern system of banking was kind of created by the Templar Knights. They held vast sums of money for every throne in Europe and even certain Muslim potentates, and they eventually involved themselves with all kinds of traders all over the continent. The order in Europe grew incredibly wealthy, very powerful, and, as you might expect as time passed, rather complacent. And this led to it becoming increasingly arrogant, brutal, and corrupt. The Templars had absorbed many ideas alien to Orthodox Roman Catholicism through exposure to Islam and Judaism, as well as Gnostic dualism, which they had learned from Cathar recruits. By the early 1300s, of course, as you might expect by any group that amassed this much power and was seen as such an incredible militaristic force, with no ties officially, politically, to any group, they were seen as a problem. Yeah. The king of France in the early 1300s decided he was going to try to figure a way to get rid of these people and to get rid of their influence, and if he was really lucky, lay his hands on their money. Now, he never got their money, but he did start a process that kind of snowballed away from him at that point in which he did what you always do when you want to make sure that you can get rid of your rival and have everybody on your side. He accused them 
of heresy. Oh, yeah. Well, let's mention also that he was in personally in huge debt to them. Which is another reason why he <laughs> might want to get rid of them. Exactly. <laughs> Never discount debt for yeah. doing something yeah. vicious, cruel, and yeah. harsh. So, of course, bizarre confessions were forced from the knights, and even stranger accusations were made. They were accused of worship of a devil, infanticide, of teaching women how to abort their children, obscene kisses at the induction of the new recruits to the order, homosexuality, oh my goodness, Mm -hmm. and so on. It was a damning litany by any standards. Given their avowed nature as the soldiers of Christ, however, and since many of them had died defending Christianity in the Crusades, the most unlikely charge leveled at the Templars was that they had ritually denied Christ, repudiating, trampling, and spitting on the Holy Cross. I'm shocked, just sitting here. (laughs) (laughs) So, as you can see from these stories of the historical downfall of the Knights Templar across Europe, there's a lot there that would have fired the imagination of almost anyone, and certainly fired the creative imagination of Amando D'Asorio. Right. Who do you turn into your boogeymen? Mm-hmm. Oh, how about these incredibly corrupt religious warriors who were accused of the most heinous crimes imaginable? There are your iconic boogeymen. Of course, Osorio is not the only person to be drawn to the Knights Templar for fictional stories of horror. Historians, occultists alike, have been drawn to the Knights Templar like moths to a flame. It's only a matter of time, of course, before someone picked this up and turned it into a horror movie. And one wonders why there hasn't been more of an attempt over time to take this incredible Mm. bit of history Mm. and blend it with even more modern ideas to bring the horror of the old world into the new world for the various contrasts that it allows someone like Amando D'Asorio with the film's budgetary constraints that we can see in front of us, mm-hmm. imagine what it could be to mm-hmm. a modern audience yeah. with someone whose imagination was just as vast, yeah. but his resources even larger. So what Osorio does with these creatures, I think, is neat that he, he takes the elements of their history that we pretty much know, and I'm sure he knew at the time, that the accusations against them were obviously false. I mean, they were tortured into confessing them. Their biggest mistake was they made too much money and they didn't forgive the debts they should have forgiven. <laughs> to, Espe- to the, especially to, to the King, King of Philip. France. Yes. Yeah. yes. So I think he could have easily have taken their real history and made these creatures Templars who were betrayed and tortured and driven into extinction, now coming to life to punish the living for their sinfulness. Or in one imagining that I can see, to punish the descendants of the religious houses of various countries mm. who sought them out and did these horrible de- that, did these horrible things to them. Yes, exactly. So, but instead, he does decide to make it true those accusations that yes, they were bloodsuckers, they were devil worshippers, they were truly evil and corrupt. And and it makes me wonder if he did that as a way of not angering the religious aspect of the country, the religious in power there in Spain, possibly by. Not making them creatures of Christianity, but creatures of Satan, I guess, of Satan worship. It's clear that Osorio was having to do a very careful Mm. two-step in the creation of these monsters because Mm. they're obviously patterned on the Knights Templar, although he doesn't call them out specifically. It's obvious what they are. I mean, the Ankh symbol that he uses on both the gravestones and on the uh, clothing in the flashback scene of the Knights is slightly altered. It's not exactly the symbol that the Knights Templar used. 
But, it, of course, it's very difficult to miss what he's aiming for. Right. So, yes, he's having to be careful. Because, remember, people, at the time these movies were made, Spain was still under the dictatorship of General Franco. And what that meant was these movies were made under the rule of a fascist government. So censorship was the rule of the day. And although he was now, of course, able to make movies, the threat of censorship hung over everything that you did. To the point where during the golden age of Spanish horror, which stretched from roughly 1968 or 69 to roughly 1977, a short spate of years, yeah. let's be clear. Yeah. Often, Spanish horror films had alternate clothed scenes shot for the Spanish versions of the sequences in these horror movies that would have nudity. So, in general, the nude version of the movie would be for the United States and England and the rest of the world, and the covered version where women were demurely draped in gauzy clothing or sometimes with a blanket or whatever, that was the Spanish version because... Nudity was verboten within Spain. There were a lot of things that were sure. not allowed within Spain. So working underneath those restrictions, yes, of course, if you're going to make your monsters demonic Christian knights, <laughs> you'd better concoct a very good reason for them to not be Christian. In other yeah. words, they're going to have to be Satan worshipers or you're not going to make it past the censors. Yeah. Of course, it doesn't change the fact that by making them the Knights of Christ, mm -hmm. who turned to, for lack of a better term, the dark side, mm -hmm. you're still indicting the religion from which mm -hmm. those knights came. Yeah. Yeah. Although, clearly, they got it by the censors, the statement of the old world, the old Catholic religion, being this, not just conservative, but this past that drags a country down, yeah. that holds it not just in place, not making it just a solid traditional place, but also keeps it from progressing. And I think this is the point at which we should talk about why these movies might be trying to, in very symbolic fashion, address the idea of conservatism and traditionalism and the political state that the films were made under in Spain clashing with more modern aspects of the world outside of Spain. Understand that Spain was under a fascist ruler from the late 30s until roughly 1975 when yeah. General Franco died. Now, it was still a couple of years, call it 1977, before movie censorship completely went away. But the reason that there was a movie industry in Spain at all starting in the 60s was that Spain, being cut off by General Franco and trying to keep Spain under his thumb, had caused a major economic problem. By the late 50s, Spain was a disaster. Economically, it was failing. And so the country was opened up by the ruling government to allow more trade, to allow tourists to come in, and to try to generate enough money to keep Spain from turning into a complete failing disaster. But of course, that kind of thing is a double-edged sword, yeah. because then you have a country, an entire group of people within that country, who've not been able to travel, who've been cut off from the outside world, and all of the changes since World War II that had taken place across the world, and especially across Europe. So... When they open the country up in the 60s and tourists start to come in, what you have is the automatic clash of a country held back 
almost non-changing in many ways since the mid-40s, seeing just how different things were. Mm -hmm. Imagine the clash of the swinging 60s of London with the repressed, very controlled world of the early 1940s. Mm This was hellish for a lot of people. And the change from the past to the modern world was very difficult. And in Spain, this clash showed up constantly. There are a number of great Spanish horror films, A Candle for the Devil being one of my favorite examples, Mm -hmm. that explicitly shows how difficult it was for an entire generation of Spanish people who only ever knew this kind of fascistic government, this very closed off world, suddenly being presented with modern sexually liberated people especially women imagine a repressive Roman Catholic society suddenly getting a look at beautiful women wearing no bras and walking around in hot pants. This clash by the late 60s was pulling Spain apart younger generations which, strangely enough, Amando Diasorio was able to identify with, regardless of the fact that he was certainly not of that generation. Yeah. Remember, he was born in 1918. Right, yeah. He still identified with those younger people and saw that clash. Although I think there's plenty of evidence in these Blind Dead films especially that he still held a number of those very conservative outlooks. Yeah. But then again, this is a horror movie, and yeah. therefore... It's kind of difficult at times to know whether or not that conservative mindset is held by the people creating the film or if that is just a convention of a horror film that you have to have that push and pull between old and new so that you have a villain reacting to something that it can avenge or detest or draw from. In other words, you're not going to have young people draining the life from old people. That's not the trope. Yeah. So in Spain, it was a hothouse. It was a little mm. greenhouse <laughs> of fascist, closed-off, conservative, Roman Catholic people suddenly being thrust into a modern world that they were not ready for. And the best and most complex of these horror movies from Spain walk that tightrope that we talk about there between like whose side are they really on, whose side are they trying to please, at the same time that they're also having to have just pure commercial considerations of just how to sell their film. But so many of these films, like this is a perfect example of that you can read from so many different ways, from a, a fascist standpoint, from a leftist standpoint. Yes, visually what we're seeing is the young and the modern and the free being punished. And yet the ones doing the punishing are so obviously being criticized too. The monsters are so obviously representative of a negative state, you know, of a, of a, of a bad history. Not just a bad history, mm-hmm. But a corrupt, demonic history. Mm. Yes. Charles, two years ago. I haven't heard from him since. I can tell you, Professor. He lives in a village on the river Guadiana, near the frontier of Spain. He's now the boss of a gang that deals in contraband. His life is out of my control now. Why do you bring this up, Inspector? That village is seven kilometers from Perzano. What significance is that? That these criminals use superstitious legends for their advantage. Could they have murdered Virginia? Con ello quieren sembrar el terror y alejar a la gente del lugar en que cometen sus fechorías. Eso es monstruoso. My son is perhaps a smuggler, but not a killer. (laughs) 
Why are you telling us this, Inspector? The attendant at the morgue was murdered. <gasps> and the body of Virginia White is missing. <gasps> Another murder. Parece una pesadilla. Tenga mucho cuidado. Su taller está muy cerca del depósito. Inspector, I'm going to see Pedro and ask a few questions. And now let's talk about zombie Virginia and her short but action-packed existence. Yes, yes, life after death, whatever you would call it there. She gets her own little little subplot here. Which is very odd. Yes. Uh, well, let's just say that it was post Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Kind of a given if you're going to have this kind of undead creature in your film. What was evident within Night of the Living Dead was that once bitten, once infected, mm-hmm. you turn and you become the monster that attacked you. So Virginia becomes a walking dead, a zombie, mm-hmm. and attacks the morgue attendant and then goes next door and into the mannequin factory, almost as if there's this lingering memory of mm-hmm. the fact that her friend Elizabeth lives yeah. and works. Yeah. Yeah. Next door and, to the morgue. Yeah. And the question is, is it drawing her because of the attraction she had or because of the resentment that she had? Or, in a very simplistic way of looking at it, is she being drawn by the flashing lights? Mm, well, that too, yeah. Also, she could be being drawn by the fact that that's the next closest living human being. <laughs> yeah. Because she attacked the one morgue attendant, Mm -hmm. the one person who was there, and she is next. And no one was happier than that poor frog in that lab. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. But the very interesting part of this is that this is the only time in the Four Blind Dead films that Osorio had the attacks, the bites of the blind dead create more undead. This is something that Osorio clearly pulled from Night of the Living Dead, Mm -hmm. incorporated into this story in this first film, and then thought better of and dropped for the last three in the quartet of Blind Dead films. Interesting. I think that there's good reason to have dropped it because it does create a problem. Now, he does actually construct the other three films in such a way that it's not likely that you're going to have Mm -hmm. victims who will have the time to be roaming around yeah. or mm-hmm. joining the blind dead in their mm. quest or perhaps being their guide dogs. Who knows <laughs> which direction things might have gone if he had retained the undead bite you, you become the undead mm. portion of the mythology he was building. Interesting that it's a very effective section of this movie, mm. but he never used that idea again. And I would say that it does work for this film, the main reason being that the whole ending of this film is very apocalyptic in tone. Yeah. He's obviously, the dead have reached the, this town, and we know that, that we're left with the idea that they're slaughtering everybody. And so, still, if you're just thinking of in terms of the dead, even if there's how many, 20, 30 of them, we never know the full count, it's still hard to really get a sense of it spreading out on a global scale until you think about the fact of... Infection. Yes, and so for the story he was trying to tell here and the ending he was going for, I think it works. But I also agree with you that for the next films, it really wasn't necessary because the stories he was telling in the second, third, and fourth films were much more isolated with sort of a different a feel, different, goal different ending. Mind, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. De- definitely a different goal, and yeah, you're right, a different feel as well. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going for that necessarily. Well, it's also good to remember that Osorio dislike the term zombie. He did not think right. of he did not think of the blind dead as zombies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were essentially a kind of mummified human being. Mm-hmm. The undead, yes, but not zombies in the way that zombies became identified in the horror genre. Um, like I say, 
probably closer to vampires in nature because mm. of the drinking of blood to sustain their life, but mummified creatures more than zombies in Osorio's way of looking at them. And given what he was reacting to, which would be the late 70s, early 80s cycle of zombie films, mm. starting with things like Lucio Fulci's zombieing, going on through the entire cycle that the Italians churned out, I can see another yeah. reason why he might want to distance himself, yeah. because his movies are a very different thing from those gore-drenched epics. Mm -hmm. I should also mention another neat little thing within this movie, which is something that reoccurs through a number of Osorio's horror movies, especially several of the Blind Dead movies, which is the appeal to authority. It's when the main characters visit an older academic or learned character to try to discover what it is that they are actually dealing with. What is this supernatural thing? So they appeal to authority. They go to someone with advanced knowledge that can possibly point them in the right direction. The professor in this movie is particularly well integrated by the script because mm -hmm. he's also the father of mm -hmm. the scumbag smuggler character we yeah. have in the latter part of the movie. And so there's a nice segue from the authority figure with all the information about the blind dead and Brizano and the person who is going to help our heroic pair of characters try to find out what is happening in that lost forbidden city. I always enjoy the appeal to authority sections because mm -hmm. it is going to a library, mm -hmm. it's searching through books, it's picking the brain of an experienced teacher or philosopher or professor in this case, and I always like the idea that there is an older set of characters within the film who know more than we do and then can impart it. And if you cast it well, it can be yeah. entertaining. Yeah. And in this movie, and actually I have to admit, Osorio was good at casting his uh, his authority figures with all the information. The uh, the rather amusing man who uh, knows a good deal about the uh, ghost galleon in the third film mm -hmm. and insists on coming along and, of course, inevitably pays for it in that movie, is another good one where you have this desire for this knowledge within this older person and sometimes that doesn't work out nearly as well <laughs> as that older character might wish it would. Well, the professor here, what's amusing about him is the way that he's so thrilled that they've encountered the dead. <laughs> yes. Totally glossing over the fact that they killed, you know, their best friend, uh, you know, which is a classic yeah, eccentric yeah. professor thing to do. But did you also pick up on the fact of how much the professor looks like the blind dead, how much he resembles? I was going to say the hair, yes, the beard. The beard, the shape of the face. Yes, yes it's great casting. <laughs> it, really, it really is. It's almost as if his long study of these mm. historic, horrible figures mm. has kind of shaped them in some <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah, but it, you're right. It's the Van Helsing archetype, you know, that goes all the way back to Dracula that's, that, that we've seen. But I love it, too, you know, this kind of character in these films. Pedro! Déjala. Deja que grite esa tonta, hombre. Debe ocurrir algo. ¿Qué va? Puede ser la policía. Pedro! Pedro! Ese truco ya me lo hiciste dos veces. Tarde o temprano vendrán por mí. Y todo por esa cerda de la Amalia. ¿Para qué tanta complicación? Dime que te vas con ella y en paz. Ya me buscaré un mozo que me acompañe. Your jealousy touches me.
right there. We've talked a good deal about how unique the Blind Dead are as monsters. From Antonio Lazaro Rabol's book, Spanish Horror Film, uh, I'd like to read this section out where he talks a little bit about these incredible creatures. The Templars had never been portrayed as horror figures before. At first, producer Jose Antonio Perez Guiner resisted financing Osorio's project because the monstrous characters he had created had no cinematic precedent and the story surrounding their historical as well as mythical existence was the stuff of legends. Spanish and international audiences, argued the producers, were only familiar with the classic monsters. How did Osorio then persuade the producers to invest in a new monster? And how were the Knights Templar sold to distributors and exhibitors first and introduced to Spanish audiences later? Osorio created his own art horror work to show them the horrific potential of the undead Templars. Designs and illustrations, such as the medieval prints, which actually feature in Tombs of the Blind Dead as an explanation of the historical existence of the Templars, he made masks and props, and together with the script, finally swayed the producers who invested 10 million pesetas in the film. The foray into new monster territory was counterbalanced with appropriate exploitative strategies, such as the producers' resolve to add the phrase La Noche, night, to the original title which was Blind Terror. Hmm. They wanted this to capitalize on the domestic success of Leon Klamowski's La Noche de Walpurgis, the Paul Nashi film, and the international reputation of Night of the Living Dead, as well as the plethora of generic markers displayed in the publicity material. Graveyards and ruins are the habitat of the living dead, whose return from the grave is signaled by ghostly sounds. While the original script names the monstrous creatures as Knights Templar and the press book dwells upon their monk-warrior condition, the publicity taglines refer to them simply as monsters, a marketing strategy to induce curiosity about their appearance and attributes. One tagline warned audiences, Monsters emerging from tombs whose sole presence paralyzes men. Another tempted audiences with some of the traditional pleasures and thrills of horror. Three desiring, ambitious, and brave women in stark contrast to abominable, nightmarish monsters. <laughs> Love interest and loss of emotional control were also used to pull in audiences. Jealousy pushed her to live a horrifying adventure. But perhaps the constant theme of these taglines that is established in relation to the film's plot is the monsters linked to the past and to their violent acts. In Tombs of the Blind Dead, medieval tombs open to give way to the most terrifying massacre. Or, they return from the Middle Ages blind and thirsty for innocent blood. <laughs> Stop right there. They've got my money. I would be, exactly. I, I would be at the ticket line every, every, every week for that. Even if it was the same film being released under a different title, I would be there every, every week. Which uh, did yes. occur yes, every yes, now yes. and then. Perhaps we should take this moment to... <laughs> relate one of the more amusing retitlings of Tombs of the Blind Dead for an American audience. So yes, it actually lived a life, however brief, in uh, American grindhouses under the title Revenge of the Planet Ape. Yes, this is true. Uh, some very ambitious <laughs> distributor recorded a voiceover introduction to the movie in which it is claimed 
that this is somehow a sequel to the Planet of the Apes films. In other words, they thought that they could fool a number of people, which they may have, into thinking that Tombs of the Blind Dead was a Planet of the Apes sequel. I believe the uh, scenario was that it was a post-apocalyptic world yes. and where the, the apes were coming back to life, I think, to and somehow ravage it, the living uh, humans. Uh, yes. Somehow on the Iberian Peninsula <laughs> in modern day? I do not understand. But nevertheless, people will try anything to make a buck. Mm-hmm. As censorship was lifted on cinema around the world, not just in Spain... Filmmakers began to be able to put images, ideas, and scenarios on screen that had been forbidden for decades. When the reins are taken off of creative people, you're going to see some excesses. And the 1970s in cinema could easily be seen as a series of excesses. People pushing the envelope, taking things too far, sometimes very far over the line and then being pulled back by ideas of taste or even the damage that the images they present could do, whether hoped for or desired or not. Mm-hmm. Exploitation cinema is famous for pushing the line. Yeah. The 1970s were an era of experimentation, flirtation with the darker elements of what could be presented on screen, and Tombs of the Blind Dead is a fine example of yeah. that. Now, Troy, you and I over the years have talked a good deal about one of the appeals of the cinema of the 1970s being that there is a tendency toward nihilism. Mm -hmm. Often, the unhappy ending, Mm -hmm. personified by Easy Rider, Mm -hmm. a movie with one of the most famous unhappy endings, downbeat endings, kind of set the tone for a lot of that kind of movie going forward. Tombs of the Blind Dead certainly has an apocalyptic, nihilistic, harsh ending. But one of the darker aspects of pushing the envelope in a lot of these movies was not just the presentation of nudity and sexuality, but the nastier side of human sexuality. Mm -hmm. And that would be, of course, rape. Tombs of the Blind Dead sports one of the most uncomfortable rape sequences in any film produced in Spain in the 1970s. Absolutely. The rape scene in this movie is disturbing on a number of levels. First, of course, it happens to the character who is as close to our main character as we have, Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, played by a beautiful actress whose sensitive portrayal of this character is actually affecting. Mm -hmm. The more we learn about her as a character, and she is one of the few characters on screen that we learn a good deal about. Yeah the more we like her. When Pedro attacks her, we have just learned from her own lips in a very sensitive moment where she's discussing her deepest feelings and her most secret self. Pedro attacks, slaps, and rapes her. I mean, she's pretty much just told him she had a bad experience in in her early life. It is a horrible scene. Mm -hmm. The shorter version of the movie seems to want to try to fix this scene by snipping out the actual rape and only giving us the lead-up and the aftermath, which, from one perspective, fixes the scene by making it less harsh. We don't have the slapping. We don't have the, the actual physical attack. But at the same time, 
it does leave the whole obvious affair to your imagination, therefore possibly conjuring up similar imagery in almost any viewer. And it adds even another type of strange tone to the, the whole scene because we see him grab her and it's cut out, which we've seen so many films this where somebody grabs someone and kisses them and they resist at first and then they give in, which is in itself can be very uncomfortable too. But we see that, it cuts away, it cuts back to the aftermath. Right. It, people not knowing what happened might actually see it as indicating that the two have had consensual sex, but neither of them enjoyed it very much, which is another strange kind of tone to yes. put on the scene. It's very off-putting, very like, what's just happened here? So, Which, of course, puts someone who's seen both versions in the position of deciding, well, which needs to be in the movie, which is the version of that scene that should be in the film. And it's an incredibly uncomfortable scene in its uncut form. It is. You and I have seen many instances in European horror films and, and thrillers, too, and films from this decade where a rape scene was filmed, obviously gratuitously, in such a manner that could be easily pulled out of a film. You can tell that in many cases because nothing that comes before the scene or after the scene... References it. Yes, yeah. so it's very obviously what it was done is, okay, here's, here's a scene for a shock value for the markets that will accept it. We can easily take it out. It doesn't mean anything. I would argue, reluctantly... I think that the rape scene is intentional. I think it was part of Amanda DeSorio's story and his intent here. The reason why is because of the way the immediate following scene between the two actors, the way they're reacting to each other, reacting to what's just happened, they both seem a, a bit unsettled by what's just happened. Yeah. Pedro himself, let's face it, the character of Pedro is pretty much, he's, he's pretty much a walking cartoonish caricature of the male ideal. He obviously thinks of himself that way. I mean, with his flashing of his weapons and his strutting around. I think that his character is supposed to have believed that this really would, in his twisted way, fix Beth. Yeah, yeah. And he, the fact that she hasn't, that she has not enjoyed it, he seems himself kind of confused by what's just happened. But what I think is even more indication of why I think this scene, unfortunately, is integral to the story, is because seconds after he has overpowered and violated Beth, he himself is overpowered and violated and made helpless by the emerging, by the, by the blind yes. dead. So I think it fits with Asario's overall theme of the helplessness of both, of everyone, no matter their ideal of themselves or their image of their own freedom or their own control over what's going on. So, you know, I don't like this scene. I know you don't either. I wish no. it wasn't there, but... It's distasteful. I do think that it belongs in the film because I do think Osario, I do think it's part of his storyline. I agree with you. I think that the symbolism is very obvious. Mm -hmm. Because we have this man who, I agree with you, does represent kind of the ultimate macho mm -hmm. scumbag. And yes, of course, he does meet his comeuppance. That is the mm -hmm. simplest mm -hmm. symbolic way to view this, which mm -hmm. is he is this idealization of the way a Spanish male has been taught to view himself and to conduct himself in the world. And the Templar Knights destroy him. Mm -hmm. He is the first victim of this group. As distasteful as this sequence is, I understand why it's there. I understand what he's aiming for. And therefore, I respect his choice while I still find the sequence hard to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another reason that it's uncomfortable is because another tendency of films from this decade was punish homosexual characters. Yes. To portray them in either a harsh light or, or as just objects of, of humor, yeah. parody, buffoons. That well, sort of thing. objects of derision as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing that watching this film, as you see that, as you could read this this way. Although I would say 
that because of how sensitively Bette's character is written in other scenes and how well she's portrayed, I, you know, I don't get the impression from this particular film that that is intentional anyway on Osario's part. I mean, none of us know. We can't get in his head. But my feeling is that the, the intent of this film is not to punish her or, par- you know, or make a parody of her. or No, you know. not at all. But it still paints her as someone victimized mm-hmm. by the patriarchy, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. Mm-hmm. And even though the patriarchy is then symbolically destroyed, she also is at threat by the thing destroying the patriarchy. The rape scene's awful. Yeah. But I have to agree with you, the film would suffer a bit if it weren't there. Yeah, and if someone wants to use this film as Exhibit A to accuse Asario of being... A totally, misogynist? Totally misanthropic. Oh, well, now, I, w- I said misogynist. You, you say misanthropic. Mm. There's a distinction there, but mm. you could be both. Yeah. Do we think he's misogynist? I don't necessarily think so. No, because what I was going to, because my feeling is if you're going to make that accusation of him, it's only fair that you look at his entire body of work or as much of it as you can. Yeah. And I don't think that these particular themes play out consistently in all of his films. They're there in some of them, depending on what he was going for. Now, certainly the Blind Dead series overall is fairly pessimistic and, and, and gritty and gloomy, um, although it has its, as it goes on, it has its, its I mean, I don't think any of them are as as, as dark as this first one. No. But, yeah, take a film like The Lorelei's Grass. Now, despite the fact that it features at its center a, a monster that rips people's hearts out and eats them. True. Overall, the film really is fairly playful and romantic in its tone. It's very fairy tale like, very fantastical, and it features both male and female characters who have heroic and noble aspects to them. Right. Now, you can also take a film like The Vermin, which fits more in with the Tombs of the Blind Dead kind of vision of humanity, whereas there's really not many likable characters in the film. The, um, vermin, the Vermin being a crime film that he made after the uh, end of the Golden Age of Spanish Horror in 1976. Right. That's one that I would say, okay, there's possibly what you'd call the misanthropic side of Disorio coming out. But I think, again, I think it came down to the type of stories he was wanting to tell. Um, I haven't seen all of his films. I know you haven't either, but we've seen a pretty good handful of them. And, and I don't think that, uh, that I would classify him as being a misogynistic or misanthropic storyteller. I wouldn't call him a misogynist, but I do think that the ideas that a man of his age, remember, born mm-hmm. in 1918... Yeah. The ideas that he would have grown up with do manifest themselves. No matter how progressive his thought process may have been, no matter how much he may have fought against the natural tendencies of what he learned growing up, even if he was just using those ideas to make his points, it's still the kind of thing that makes us both uncomfortable, and I think it makes almost anyone in the modern era who sees this movie uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, one of the attractions for me for the Blind Dead films is their pulp horror roots. These things that are so essential in these kind of stories draw me like a moth to a flame. Osorio maximized the narrative template of this film when he made his sequels using kind of similar framing devices typical of the horror genre, while at the same time introducing some variations by placing his monster's protagonist in different contexts. The references to the legend and folklore of the Knights Templar also suffered alterations throughout the cycle, in the same way that uh, Jess Franco and Paul Nashi were inconsistent in the use of their mythology surrounding, say, the Dr. Orloff character or the Valdemar Daninsky character in their respective film cycles. In Tombs of the Blind Dead, the framing device functions thus. First, through the oral elements of a local legend and superstitions connecting the place with some mysterious deaths, we have the introduction of a scholar, 
That would be Professor Cantrell, who provides the historical framework and a voice of authority. And thirdly, through the actions of the monsters themselves, which provide the shocking and sensational murders. These framing devices, whose narrative function is to state and restate the plot for the audience, similarly structure all three sequels as well. So he used the basic template for this film for each of the sequels, varying them to some degree or another. I would say that he didn't vary it very much for the mm-hmm. second one, mm-hmm. but for the third and fourth ones, he really did. Mm-hmm. In the second one, he kind of delved even more into the idea of them having to hear you. They can yes. track you by hearing you. It touches on a little bit in this film, but really goes into it in the next film. Now, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've given much thought to over the years thinking about this movie is that the dead in this movie being blind, having had their eyes plucked out by birds, are deprived of one of the five senses, and therefore, to hunt their prey, they have to use sound. And it got me to thinking about the sensitivity of different aspects of how we perceive the world, and I got to thinking, what did the blind dead smell like? <laughs> and It's a valid question. It's a valid question. Would they have stunk of the moldering grave and therefore... Mm-hmm warned their victims, hey, dead thing walking. Mm. Or would it have been a nice... Sp- I guess it wouldn't have been like the smell of an Egyptian mummy because they were packed with spices and all these different things. And there's a lot of literature out there on what Egyptian corpses smell like, the mummified mm. corpses of pharaohs and things of that nature. But what did the blind dead smell like? An old shoe? A moldering grave? I'm assuming something dusty and... Cobwebby? Yeah. I, th- I think I want to send this idea to the Yankee Candle Company and see if they can come out with a special blinded scented blinded candle. Blinded scented candle? <laughs> yes, I think so. Burn at your next viewing party. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Outside of the four Blind Dead films, there aren't very many movies that have appropriated the iconic look of the Blind Dead. I can only think of a couple. Right. There was uh, one that was made by none other than Jess Franco in 1982 called... Mansion of the Living Dead. Yes, uh, a very sexy horror film, as you might expect um, from uh, yeah. that, that period <laughs> and that filmmaker. He definitely uses the uh, iconic look of the blind dead in that movie to good effect, I would say. It's actually a pretty good little movie. Not in the same category as the four blind dead movies, but still worth seeing if you're a genre aficionado. And actually, uh, Paul Nashi himself uh, had a connection to the Blind Dead world because he wrote a script for a film called Cross of the Devil. In 1975, it was made by director John Gilling. Uh, unfortunately, controversially, Paul Nashi was not involved in the production. Yeah. Uh, and it's a difficult film to see these days, yeah. but if you can seek it out, it's worth seeing. It's a very good little movie, and there are certainly some very Blind Dead-looking killer monks right. or undead creatures in the movie. Our friend Dan Fisher, who we affectionately call our man in the field on the Nashi cast, is also our go-to source for instances in modern music where Spanish horror has made its influences known. In the genre of heavy metal and its many stylistic offshoots particularly, the Blind Dead films have proven to be very fertile ground for some interesting musical concoctions. So here's just a little brief list of, of Blind Dead-inspired music that Dan has kindly shared with us. There's a band called Beastmaker that have a song called Nights That Came From Hell. There is a four-song EP by a band called Zoltan, which is a great name for a band. Uh, and the EP, the EP is called Tombs of the Blind Dead, and each song is named after one of the films. 
It's actually more of an album of, I guess, alternative soundtrack music to the films rather than like rock or heavy metal songs. Okay. Very atmospheric stuff, though. Uh, there's a band called Cathedral that have a song called Night of the Seagulls and another one called Vengeance of the Blind Dead. There's a German band called Chainsaw that has a song called Tombs of the Blind Dead. And finally, there's a band called Denial Fiend. And stay with me on this. The title of their song is Return to the Tomb of the Cursed Blind Dead. It's actually the, the song. The title is longer than the song itself. But but this is all like really a lot of fun stuff. And it's all out there. If you can seek it out on YouTube and other places uh, and check it out. Um, if you're looking for music to rock out to or to sacrifice under the moonlight to or to ride your horse in slow motion to, uh, check this stuff out. Well, it is great to know that Osorio's greatest creation is still generating creativity of all different types. Yeah, if you go to a horror convention now, you're liable to see all sorts of fan art, t-shirts. Uh, there's been some sculptures, figures released. Oh, of um, course. Yeah. I myself have a small collection of Blind Dead t-shirts. You do. We mentioned early on that Osorio's first film in 1956, The Black Flag, mm-hmm. was heavily censored and heavily fined because it dealt with capital punishment. It was a direct attack on the capital punishment system in Spain at the time. Osorio was once again making a particular stab at attacking the same idea that he was attacking in the Black Flag. 25 years after making his initial censored and suppressed movie, making this one, he returns to that critique of, let's call it Francoism, this time modeling his critique in the body of these Templar Knights. Although Tombs of the Blind Dead was affected by censorship, it can be argued that this time Osorio outmaneuvered the censors with a series of production and aesthetic choices. Overall, the commercial vessel of a popular genre film, such as horror, and an iconography associated with fictional characters did not pose too many problems for the censorship board. The producers were denied permission to film in Spain, of course, and were obliged to abandon the original idea of setting the narrative in Spain. But after securing co-production money from Portugal, that country became the tourist location stand-in for the tourist locations in Spain that Osorio was clearly pointing toward. Antonio Lazaro Rebol, in his Spanish horror film book again, points out that the editing of the first 20 minutes of the film evokes the most recent history of Spain by juxtaposing images of decay and devastation with the glamorous and affluent world of tourism. The recent past of the Spanish Civil War is conjured up in the opening credits by the still images of a destroyed and abandoned village, and it is in this crumbling setting that the medieval Templars emerge out of their tombs, erupt into the present world of the narrative, and reenact scenarios of crimes and massacres. Subsequently, the opening sequence introduces the viewer to the modern tourist resort where the protagonists are enjoying the pleasures and commodities of modern capitalist society, unaware of the horrific reality that they are about to unearth. But it is in the presence of the monstrous Knights Templar and their monk warrior uniform, which also provide continuity in the critique of Francoist institutions and the values of Spain. Although the appearance of these zombie crusaders in modern settings is hauntingly anachronistic, they sum up a very recent past, threatening to return at a time when the Francoist state was degenerating. The army of zombie monk soldiers became Osorio's representation of a grotesque and horrific version of the fascist masculine ideal of the monk warrior associated with the fascist rhetoric that pervaded nationalist propaganda texts during the late 1930s and throughout the 1940s. 
the monk soldier was in a constant state of war against anything anti-Spanish, shedding blood and sacrificing his life for the cause. By extension, the Knights Templar harked back to the Francoist propaganda machinery of the Crusade of Liberation, which shaped the essence of Spanish national Catholicism during and after the Civil War period, when the nationalist forces led by Franco defeated the Republican army. In official Francoist narratives, the Crusade of Liberation was linked to the wider medieval, mythical, and heroic tradition of the Christian Crusaders, as well as the local Christian reconquest of the peninsula from the Moors. Franco constructed himself as a military man with a religious mission, etching this message in Spaniards' imaginations through iconic visual images which portrayed him as a heroic military figure. The regime's rhetoric granted him appellatives such as General Priest or Sword of the Highest, thus fusing religious and military, and described the dictator as an otherworldly being, such as Captain of the Vessel. In the medium of cinema, the narrative of the crusade was represented and legitimized throughout the subgenre of the Cine de Crusade, or Cinema of the Crusade, which celebrated the crusade, which would be the Spanish Civil War, all its participants, and the resultant militarist state. Although Osorio has acknowledged in interviews that he had no pretensions to innovate the genre, his was not only a conscious effort at product differentiation and an original contribution to the International Hall of Monsters, but also an incisive critique of Franco's regime through the codes and conventions of horror. Perhaps initial comparisons with and distinction from Night of the Living Dead reach beyond the low-budget horror movie model of generic traits and exploitative elements. Osorio's cycle must be also considered as subversive as Romero's film, though Romero's film, after all, has been and still is read as a critical commentary on the American society of the 1960s. The violence and destruction inscribed in the mise-en-scene of Osorio's cycle are a far cry from contemporary Francoist official discourses about Spain being a peaceful forest and Franco being the artificer of peace. The iconic wardrobe of these zombie crusaders military religious uniforms with avenging swords and their violent attacks from horseback act as a reminder of the forces which created and maintained an authoritarian regime based on terror and death. Furthermore, these knights of terror are the literal embodiment of death, whose resurrection conjures up a history of death and institutional violence. Anyone arguing that Amando de Osorio didn't think these things through and didn't encode this stuff in his very carefully thought-out film is simply snowing. One of the aspects of the Blind Dead that I particularly find fascinating in this first film is the fact that not a single one of them is actually dispatched or destroyed in any way throughout the whole movie. In fact, the only undead creature at all that we see reach its demise is Virginia, the yes. creature, they cre the zombie they created. I think that's amazing because I can't think of any other group of creatures or monsters in film history that at some point in the film, one of them or, or several of them aren't destroyed or at least that you get some sort of insight into how to destroy them. We're never given that in this first film. Now, obviously, we begin to see it as it goes forward. He would have to do that if you're going to continue a series. You're going to have to give yeah. us more to work with that. But for this one film that he was trying to do, this story, I think it's very effective because, again, he is trying to tell a very pessimistic, dark, apocalyptic type of story. 
True. And so throughout the whole film, we, we never see a single one destroyed, and that just adds to this whole aspect, this whole feeling of them as being this unstoppable, irresistible force that's just going to kind of over, overwhelm everything in their path. That's true, and the place in a movie of this type where we would get mm. at least the information on mm. how to dispatch mm. the villains would have been during the segment with the professor, yeah. and he has absolutely mm. no advice on that subject at all. Yeah. The solution for destroying the monsters that Osorio comes up with in the sequel film, the second Blind Dead movie, I've always thought was very strange, mm -hmm. which was essentially just having to wait until the sun came up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That really kind of takes away from the effectiveness of the end of this movie in that it's very clear that these things will be able to move around in the daylight and do some damage on their own. That is, at least in the final shot we want to thank you for listening to us talk to you about this movie. My name is Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. What you listeners don't realize is that Rod has been sitting here the whole time wearing a moldy old Templar's cloak that he always drags out when we talk about the blind dead. And the odor is filling the room, and so I'm happy to <laughs> sign off here. <laughs> you don't have to wonder what the blind dead would smell like. I either. don't. I'm sitting right next to one. Thank you, folks. And remember, stay away from Burzano. <laughs> <laughs>